Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we focused on the unification of Norway under its first king, the legendary Harald Fairhair. Harald inherited his father's petty kingdom as a boy, and after a shaky beginning, he managed to stabilize his rule thanks to his uncle Guthorm. Once that was achieved, he set out on a campaign to conquer all the other petty kingdoms of Norway. According to the sagas, he did so because the girl he loved made that her condition for marrying him. Harald even promised not to cut or comb his hair before he could call himself king of all of Norway. It took him a decade or so, but in the end, all the other petty kings were either dead or had submitted to Harald's rule. The final decisive battle took place at Hofersfjord, and there Harald defeated the kings of Agder, Telemark, Hordaland and Rogaland. One of the fallen petty kings was the father of the girl he fancied so much he started this whole project to begin with. I can't help thinking that that must have made their wedding breakfast rather awkward. One of the first things Harald is supposed to have done after proclaiming himself king of all of Norway was to get a haircut. After that, his supporter Rangvald Jarl gave him the nickname Fairhair, which has stuck through the ages. Harald Fairhair ruled his kingdom for decades, and when he died in the early 930s, he hoped that his favorite son Eric, whom he'd made co-ruler three years earlier, would take over in a smooth succession that would cement his dynasty's rule over a united Norway forever. Today, we'll see what happened to that hope, as we have a closer look at how well Eric lived up to his father's expectations. Episode 22, Fairhair's Heirs. Last time I mentioned that Harald had many sons with several different women, and that he appointed these sons as rulers of their mother's respective home regions. We also talked about their rivalry, and how Harald's favoring of Eric didn't do much to encourage brotherly love between the heir apparent and his brothers. But this arrangement wasn't the only reason for the tension in the family. Several of the Haraldsons were high-handed and violent also in relation to other people than their hated half-brother, daddy's favourite, Eric. For instance, two of Harald's sons with his concubine Snaefrith, called Havdan Longlegs and Guthor the Gleaming, killed Harald Fairhair's ally, Rungvald Jarl, by burning him alive in his hall. A possible motive for the murder was greed, because they then proceeded to seize all of Rungvald's lands in Möre and the Orkney Islands. Harald Fairhair can't have been happy about this, since Rongvald Jarl was his BFF, the guy who'd cut his hair and who gave him the catchy nickname and all that. But if Harald had planned to punish his sons for the murder, Rongvald's own son, Torfeinar, who was the Jarl of Orkney at the time, beat him to it. He caught up with Havdan Longlegs in the Orkney Islands and killed him as vengeance. According to the sagas, he sacrificed him to Odin by performing a blood eagle on him, but that might just be literary hyperbole. Before the vendetta could go any further, the king stepped in. He decreed that all the lands in Mere that had been taken from Rongwald Jarl should be restored to his son Thor the Silent, who was also given one of Harald Fairhair's daughters as a wife in compensation for two of her brothers having killed her new husband's father. Thorfeinar was a different matter. He had killed King Harald's son in a cruel and humiliating fashion, and King Harald wanted to punish him. He dispatched a fleet to the Orkney Islands to kill the Jarl, but they failed in their mission. 
In the end, Harald Fairhair agreed to have Thorfeinar pay him 60 gold marks as compensation for the death of Havdan Longlegs. Thorfeinar paid up and was left to rule the Orkney Islands in peace. Guthra the Gleaming, Harald Fairhair's other son who had been involved in the murder of Rangwald Jarl, was called to join the king's guard. There, Harald could keep a close eye on his unruly son and make sure he kept out of any further trouble. So, in conclusion, Harald's sons were a violent and difficult group of people, all of them with experience of governing more or less independently, albeit nominally in the name of their mostly distant father. Not the best setup for a smooth transition of power at the top when Harald Fairhair died. His successor, Eric, would need to be a very skillful diplomat and shrewd politician to have the slightest chance to pull it off. Unfortunately, Eric was neither a skillful diplomat nor a shrewd politician. Eric was a warrior, and just like his father, he had a raging temper and was prone to violent outbursts. As I mentioned last time, Eric's mother was a Danish princess called Ragnhild, the daughter of King Eric of Jutland. The sagas don't agree on whether he was Harald's firstborn or one of the last sons, but it doesn't really matter. Harald Fairhair had appointed him his heir, and that was that. Eric was the only one of Harald's sons who wasn't raised by his mother at her parents' home. This was because Eric's maternal grandfather was the king of Jutland, and Harald wanted his heir to grow up in Norway, far away from the looming threat of an increasingly powerful Denmark. And yes, kids, that is what they call foreshadowing. Sadly, Eric's mother Ragnhild died when Eric was still very young, and since Harald Fairhair wasn't really a hands-on kind of father, he sent his favourite son to be raised by one of his chieftains called Thorir. This was a rather common arrangement among the Scandinavian elites at the time, and it was considered a great honour to be appointed as the foster father to one of your king's sons. It was a bit of an expense, that's true, but just imagine the connections you'd have later in life. Growing up in Thorir's household, Eric became close with his foster brother, Arnbjorn, who would become his loyal advisor and voice of reason at court once Eric ascended to the throne. When Eric was 12, his daddy, the king, gave him five longships and the young Eric went raiding like a proper viking. This campaign, that lasted for the better part of a decade, was meant to toughen him up a bit and prepare him for his future role as king of Norway. It certainly appealed to his violent nature, and he had plenty of opportunities to hone his fighting skills. The first four years were spent raiding in the east, along the coasts of the Baltic Sea. Then he spent another four years making life miserable for the people along the coasts of Francia, England, Wales, Ireland and Scotland, until he finally went north and pillaged and killed in Lapland and Bjarmaland, far north along the Atlantic coast of Scandinavia, beyond the borders of his father's kingdom. Eric returned to Norway when he was 20 years old, a grown man with plenty of riches and raiding experience. Eric is known to history as Eric Bloodaxe. Some people claim that he got the nickname because of his enthusiasm for killing people during his youthful campaigning. But others point out that blooding your axe during Viking raids wouldn't make you stand out all that much during the Viking Age. Even if you were only a teenager when you did it. It's more likely, they argue, that Eric earned his nickname Bloodaxe because he killed several of his brothers both before he became king and after he ascended the throne in a ruthless attempt to stay on it. If you ask me, that seems like a good enough reason to be named Bloodaxe. In a way, all these fratricides were their father's fault. By providing several of his sons with domains to rule in his name, 
Harold Fairhair had really set them up against each other. The system did work, more or less, as long as Harold was still alive, because all the sons were loyal to their father. But no one really cared about the institution of the monarchy or the idea of the indivisible nation. Those are anachronistic concepts. So when Harold Fairhair wasn't around to have the final word anymore, violent conflicts soon flared up. Those brothers who weren't Eric didn't see why they should have to yield to him and his will. They were the sons of Harold Fairhair just as much as he was. As I mentioned last time, Runwald, who ruled his mother Snaefrither's native Hadeland, was the first brother to be killed. You may remember from last time that Runwald Haraldsson was into magic, just like his mother Snaefrith had been. King Harold Fairhair, on the other hand, was definitely not into that stuff, and ordered his son to stop it with this magic nonsense at once. When Runwald refused, Harold sent Eric to deal with the situation. Eric chose to deal with the situation by burning his brother Rangwald and eight of his closest magician friends alive in Rangwald's hall. The next brother to be killed was Björn, who ruled Westfold. Eric swung by one day and demanded that Björn hand over that year's tax revenues to Eric so that he could bring them to their father, the king. Björn refused, saying that he wanted to do it himself, as he always did. Eric did not take this well and set fire to Björn's house. Arson seems to have been a thing for the Haraldsons. When Björn came running out of his burning house, Eric cut him down. A third brother, Halvdan the Black, tried to avenge the death of Björn by arranging an ambush for Eric, but Eric survived and the conflict between the sons was only de-escalated because King Harald Fairhair put his foot down and demanded that Eric spare Halvdan's life. In between all the raiding and arson, Eric had the time to get married. Just like his own mother, his bride was a Danish princess. Her name was Gunhild, and the sagas describe her as a beautiful and intelligent, but also proud, willful, ambitious, and scheming woman. Together with the foster brother Arnbjörn, she became one of Eric's main counsellors. If Arnbjörn was a good cop, advising caution and restraint, Gunhild was the hot-headed bad cop, demanding retribution and violence. At least, that's what the sagas would have you believe, but I think it's worthwhile to note that the evil wife guiding a powerful man in a disastrous direction is a trope almost as old as literature itself. Gunhild and Eric had several children, not as many as Harald Fairhair, mind you, but still enough to cause trouble down the line. After three years as co-regents, Harald Fairhair died and Eric Bloodaxe was the sole king of all of Norway. I can't help wondering if Eric had dreaded this day or longed for it. Either way, he must have known what would happen next. Many of his brothers didn't want to accept him as king ruling over them, so several of them rebelled and declared themselves independent petty kings of the regions they had been ruling in their father's name for several years already. If Eric wanted to be king of Norway in anything but name alone, he'd have to fight. But Eric Bloodaxe was a warrior. He liked to fight. Eric met the forces of his brother Sigrid, king of Trondheim, and Olaf, king of Westfold and Telemark, in a battle close to Tunsberg, a town their father had supposedly founded in southeastern Norway on the western shore of the Oslo Fjord. Eric's larger and battle-hardened warriors, including many veterans from Eric's long years of Viking raids, won a decisive victory over their opponents. Both Sigrid and Olaf fell in the battle, and when the other rebellious brothers received word of the outcome, they chose to go into exile. Eric Bloodaxe now controlled all of Norway. 
His brothers were either dead or defeated, and nothing seemed to stand in the way between the young King Eric and a long reign over united Norway. Except one thing. Eric's youngest brother, Håkon. Håkon Haraldsson had been living abroad, being raised at the court of King Æthelstan of England, and for that reason he'd managed to stay out of the fray when the other brothers rebelled against Eric Bloodaxe. Also, Håkon was the youngest and not so much more than a child, so I'm not sure how much use he would have been to Sigrid, Olaf and all the others. But now King Æthelstan decided that it would perhaps be a good idea to have a loyal ally on the throne of Norway. Why not somebody who'd grown up in his own household, who could be counted on to see things his way, not least with regards to their common enemy, Denmark? So he supplied Håkon with a fleet and some soldiers and sent him off to conquer his father's old kingdom and oust his brother, King Eric Bloodaxe. The moment was chosen well. Norway was ripe for another challenger to Eric's rule. Eric wasn't particularly well suited to administer a kingdom, and through his harsh and despotic rule, according to the sagas encouraged by his wife Gunhild, he'd made himself unpopular with the people, but also with the chieftains and elites who could actually do something about it. Eric should have remembered his father's wise trick of rewarding loyal chieftains and allies, but no, he lacked his father's deft political touch. Håkon, known as Adelstein's Fostre because he'd been the foster son of King Æthelstan, arrived in Norway in the year 935. He chose to land in Trøndelag, and that wasn't by coincidence. Not only was this a rich and important part of the country, but he also knew that he had a good chance of rallying the local Jarl, Sigurd Håkansson, to his revolt. Jarl Sigurd was an old friend of Håkans. In fact, unlike the king, the Jarl had been present at Håkans' birth, and it was the Jarl who had given him his name, Håkon, after the Jarl's own father. Sigurd welcomed Håkon and called a thing. There, he talked up Håkon, explaining to the assembled thingmen that Håkon Haraldsson would be a much better king than his incompetent and violent half-brother Eric Bloodaxe and his evil queen Gunhild. Håkon also sweetened the deal by promising to reduce some of the taxes imposed by his father, Harald Fairhair. It did the trick. Trøndelag joined the revolt, declaring Håkon king, and soon other regions did as well. Håkon continued inland to the southeast to Oplanden and arrived there in the fall. He was greeted warmly and declared king there as well. He then continued down to Viken, and wherever he went, he was met by enthusiasm. Håkon was popular. King Eric, who was not, sat in the west of Norway and received reports about how Håkon's forces grew as he passed from region to region and was declared king without anyone fighting for Eric. At some point, he realized that it was over. He had lost the country, and if he didn't want to lose his life as well, he'd better pull up stakes and leave before Håkon and his growing armies would catch him. So Eric decided to flee. He packed up his family, including his wife Gunhild and his foster brother Arinbjörn, onto ships and left Norway for good. He had only ruled by himself for a couple of years. The rest of his life, Eric Bloodaxe would spend in exile in the British Isles. First, he had sailed for the Orkney Islands, where he supposedly married off one of his daughters to the local Jarl. Then he spent time doing what he liked doing best, raiding. He and his Vikings campaigned in England, Scotland and Ireland until King Æthelstan, who had sent his brother Håkon to Norway to unseat him, offered him the position of King as Jorvik in the north of England, on the condition that he stopped raiding in Æthelstan's kingdom. Raiding in lands other than England was still fine as far as Æthelstan was concerned. Eric also needed to undergo baptism and pay taxes to Æthelstan, but otherwise he could run Jorvik just as he pleased. 
As all of you who remember episode 8 already know, Eric Bloodaxe accepted the deal. And it was actually not such a bad deal. Northumbria, where Jorik was situated, was a much richer realm than Norway, and the weather was at least marginally more pleasant. Unfortunately for Eric, he was still rubbish at being king, and his reign in Jorvik would be short and end with him being toppled from, from yet another throne and then killed. Meanwhile, back in Norway, Eric's younger brother Håkon took control over the country with relative ease after Eric left. Now, and we're talking 934, give or, give or take, Håkon Haraldsson was the unchallenged king of Norway. He was young, he was popular, he was handsome and well-educated, but he was a stranger to his new realm. His father had been almost 70 years old when Håkon was born. His mom, Thora Mosterstang, on the other hand, had only been in her 20s. She was a servant in King Harald's household when she caught his fancy, and he decided that he wanted yet another concubine. Saying that a servant girl married the king might sound more dramatic than it actually was. She was probably of a prominent family, with light duties of entertaining the royal women at court. A sort of lady-in-waiting, if you like. Hardly a scullery maid. Thora was on her way to join the king when she gave birth to Håkon on a peninsula in Hordaland, which is now called Håkonshella because of its connection to King Håkon. As I mentioned before, Jarl Sigurd of Trondheim was present at the birth, even though the king wasn't. It was Jarl Sigurd who performed the ritual of pouring water over the child's head and thereby bringing him into the family and making it a crime to kill him by exposure. He also gave the boy his name Håkon, after his own father, as I already mentioned. When Håkon was five years old, he was sent to England to become the foster son of King Æthelstan. This was a confidence-building measure between Norway and England, two countries with common interests and a common enemy in the newly united Kingdom of Denmark. Having a strong relationship with England was good for Norway, and it was good for Håkon too, since it may have saved his life a decade or so later when Eric Bloodaxe started to kill his brothers. But now, Håkon was back in Norway. During his first years on the throne, he was known as Håkon Adelstein's Fostre, because he had been the foster son of King Æthelstan and his English upbringing must have set him apart during those first years on the throne. Håkon had grown up in a very different environment than his brothers. The court of Æthelstan was much richer, much more sophisticated and more cosmopolitan than anything Norway had to offer in the 10th century. The young prince got to know future Frankish kings and noblemen, and even though he was taught to be a skilled warrior, he also learned to read and write, and he was baptized. As I mentioned last time, he was the first Christian king of Norway. Even though Håkon was both wise and well-educated, when he became king, he was still just a teenager. It's not easy for such a young person to run a whole country, especially if it's a country that you don't know. It's easy to make mistakes and misjudgments based on a lack of cultural and political knowledge and understanding, paired with youthful hubris. That seems to be exactly what happened to Håkon. As I mentioned a moment ago, the young king who had been educated in England, was a Christian. He rested on Sundays and fasted on Fridays, but he realized that he had to be careful and not to rub his religion in the faces of his pagan subjects. In the beginning, only his inner circle was baptized. But like so many other Christian kings in pagan lands, Håkon was keen on spreading Christianity among his subjects. When he was securely installed as king of Norway, he sent for a bishop and some missionary priests from England. Then he declared that all of Norway should become Christian. To begin with, he focused his missionary efforts on the Trøndelag region. 
This was a rich and important part of the country, and it was here that he'd first arrived from England when he came to topple his brother Eric. So Trøndelag was once again the key to Håkon's plans. If he could get them to accept the new religion, the other regions would follow suit. Unfortunately for Håkon, the people of Trøndelag would have none of it. They weren't interested in this new religion of his, and reminded Håkon that they had made him king of Norway to begin with, and they could just as easily take another king if Håkon didn't drop this Christianity business. Not only were they not going to be baptized, they expected Håkon to perform the pagan rituals and sacrifices expected from a Norwegian king. Obviously, the king wasn't prepared for that reaction, and he wasn't going to let his subjects dictate his religious practices when he felt that it was his job to dictate theirs. Things got a little heated, so Jarl Sigurd, Håkon's old friend, had to step in to smooth things over. The Jarl promised that Håkon would perform his duties as king, just like his father had done before him. The people of Trøndelag trusted Jarl Sigurd, because not only was he the second most powerful man in Norway after the king, he had also remained true to the old gods. King Håkon, for his parts, also trusted Jarl Sigurd. After all, if it weren't for him, Håkon would never have become king in the first place. So Håkon agreed to attend the required sacrifices, but he did not intend to participate. He sat apart with a small coterie of Christian friends, while the pagan elites of Trøndelag performed their rituals. But this wasn't good enough for the people. They grumbled, and the king was forced to take a more active part. When he was supposed to drink to Odin, he took the drinking horn from Jarl Sigurd, who had invoked the god, but the king then made the sign of the cross over the beverage before he took a sip. This was noted by people in attendance, and they grew suspicious. The following day, there was a ritual meal where a horse was on the menu, and the king refused to eat any, for religious reasons. At this time, the consumption of horse meat was forbidden by the church. But then the congregation attacked the king, and once again, Jarl Sigurd had to step in to defuse the situation. He told Håkon to pretend to eat a symbolic amount. The king agreed, and even though this fixed the immediate problem, no one was happy. Not the king, and not the people. A few months later, eight members of the most influential families in Trøndelag decided that it was time to put a stop to this Christianity business once and for all. As the midwinter sacrifices were approaching, they decided to act. Four of them set out for Møre, where they killed three priests and burned down three churches. The other four went to where King Håkon was scheduled to participate in the important midwinter sacrifices. They were dead set to force the king to perform the proper rituals, without signs of the cross or fake eating or anything like that. This time, not even Jarl Sigurd could broker any kind of compromise, and King Håkon realized that he had to do what the people demanded. He ate horse liver and performed the libations to Odin without any Christian funny business. The people of Trøndelag might have won the battle, but not the war. When King Håkon left Trøndelag after the midwinter festivities, he was fuming. He was going to show those insubordinate subjects who was king and what happened when you humiliated him. He decided that the next time he'll set foot in Trøndelag, it would be at the head of a force strong enough to protect him from further demands from the locals. Jarl Sigurd tried to reason with him. Trøndelag was too important as a power base to upset its elites over this. Håkon shouldn't mess with them and risk their loyalty. But Håkon wasn't listening. His honor and his religion had been trampled upon. He was going to show them who was king. He spent the rest of the winter in Møre. In spring, he gathered a big force. 
He was going to force his will and his religion on the people in Trendelag, who had humiliated him and forced him to compromise with his religion. Norway was on the brink of a civil war based on religion. But the country was spared the hell of civil war, thanks to a foreign invasion. It was the sons of Erik Bloodaxe who, after spending some time at their grandfather's court in Denmark, had decided to make an appearance in their father's old kingdom. The Eriksons arrived in the southeastern part of Norway, the region called Viken, where they'd first defeated the local forces loyal to Håkon before they proceeded to raid and pillage the countryside. As soon as he received reports about the invasion, King Håkon's attitude vis-à-vis Trøndelag flipped 360 degrees. Instead of invading, he sent a message asking them to muster a force to join him in fighting off the invaders. So, just like that, Håkon and his pagan people united against Erik Bloodaxe's sons. King Håkon met his nephews at Ovaldsnes on the west coast of Norway, very close to Hafrsfjord where Harald Fairhair had defeated his last opponents. The two fleets came sailing from different directions and the soldiers disembarked to fight on land. It was a fierce battle, but when Guttorm Eriksson fell, his brothers lost their cool and tried to escape. That caused their forces to dissolve and flee down toward the ships. Anyone who knows anything about battles will tell you that turning your back to the enemy and running is about the most dangerous thing you can do. This battle was no exception. King Håkon's troops pursued the fleeing invaders and killed many of them as they were trying to escape. So many soldiers fell that day that the field where the battle had taken place was called the Blood Field for many years to come. But the surviving Eriksons and their warriors weren't out of danger even after they had boarded their ships and set course back to Denmark. Håkon's fleet followed them all the way to East Agder at the southernmost tip of Norway to make sure that they really were leaving. After the battle at Bloodfield, King Håkon dropped his revenge plans against Trøndelag. He also didn't try to force Christianity upon anyone anymore. But he still did favor Christianity, of course, and had churches erected here and there. Håkon also moved the pagan Yule celebrations so that they would be observed during Christmas, and he decreed that every free man had to make at least 30 liters of Yule ale every year. King Håkon also reformed the thing system. From now on, people would start sending representatives to the things, instead of just all showing up and having a say. Presumably, the king hoped that these assemblies would be easier to handle if they were smaller and mostly made up of the kind of people who always managed to be elected to these kinds of things, namely local chieftains and other rich and powerful landowners. Håkon also implemented some reforms that were meant to boost the country's defences. He divided the land into areas that each had to provide a warship for the king's fleet, if, or more likely, when he asked for it. This not only increased the size of the king's fleet without him having to pay for it, it also reduced the time it would take to muster the fleet. It was good for defense as well as for offense. Finally, Håkon also established a network of beacons that could spread the news about an approaching invader much quicker than a ship could sail or a horse could run. Almost 800 of these beacons were placed on hilltops all over the country. Using this system, news of an invading army could be spread from the southernmost tip of Norway to the very north in a matter of days, giving the defence time to muster and strike at the invaders before they had a chance to do too much damage or to entrench themselves. This was a great invention and would probably have been an enormous help. The problem was that Håkon was too worried that people would abuse the system and light the beacons needlessly. To avoid such abuse, 
he stipulated high penalties for lighting the beacons in case of a false alarm. This meant that when the surviving Ericsons eventually did return, people were too afraid to light the fires and no alarm went out. At the time, and we're talking 955 for those of you keeping track at home, King Håkon was once again residing in the rich Trøndelag region, and he only found out that the Ericssons and their fleet jam-packed with Danish Vikings were, were approaching when they were a few hundred kilometers south of his own position. Despite his best efforts to avoid it, Håkon had been taken by surprise by his nephews. He mustered what forces he could and set out to meet them in yet another battle. The odds were against the smaller Norwegian force, so they decided to try a trick. Håkon sent ten men with standards to spread out just over the crest of a long, low ridge at Rastarkalv in Møre. That way, the immense Danish force that approached them from the other side was fooled into believing that they were up against a Norwegian army that outnumbered them, when, in fact, it was the other way around by some margin. The Danes panicked and started to run for their ships, fearing that they would once again be slaughtered by the Norwegian defenders. When they reached the shore, they discovered that their ships had been pushed out to sea, so they were trapped on the beach with the Norwegian attackers falling on their backs. Many Danes lost their lives on that beach, among them another one of Erik Bladaxo's sons, Gamle Eriksson. The battle at Rasterkalv turned out to be a great triumph for King Håkon of Norway, and a drastically reduced Danish force eventually managed to make it back to Denmark with the surviving Eriksons. But there were still Eriksons left, and they were as determined as ever before to oust their uncle and regain their father's Norwegian throne. It took them a few years to regroup and gather a new invasion force to make another serious attempt, but in the year 961, the three surviving sons of Erik Bladax once again set sail for Norway. They managed to land undetected in Hordaland on the southwest coast, very close to Fitjar where King Håkon was residing at the time. Once again, the king had been taken by surprise. Once again, no one had dared to light the beacons to warn of the approaching danger. As a consequence, this Danish force was also much larger than the meagre defense Håkon managed to call together at such short notice. But even though they were supposedly outnumbered six to one, the Norwegians attacked the invaders. King Håkon realized that the risk of his warriors being outnumbered and defeated was high, so in an attempt to boost their morale, he removed his armor before joining the battle. His only defense was his golden helmet, which, unfortunately for him, made him rather easy for the Danes to spot on the battlefield. To protect the king, one of Håkon's men eventually put a cap over the golden helmet so that it wouldn't attract so much enemy attention. It worked, and the invaders lost track of the king's whereabouts. An annoyed Danish soldier shouted that the Norwegian king had run off to hide, but unfortunately for him, Håkon happened to be right there within earshot, and he was so enraged by the accusation of cowardice that he stepped up to the shouting Dane and cleft him in two with his sword, through the helmet, head and upper body all the way down to his hip. When the other Danes saw this, they panicked again. They fled, and so the Norwegians won the battle at Fityar as well. Håkon was elated. Three times he'd been attacked by his nephews, backed by their maternal uncle, the King of Denmark, and three times he and his small force of Norwegian defenders had defeated them. But in that moment of sweet, sweet victory, one of the fleeing Danes got in a parting shot and hit King Håkon in the arm with an arrow. The wound didn't seem too serious at first, and the king went on hunting down fleeing Danes. After the mopping up was finished, he and his retinue set sail north again. 
but ble the bleeding just didn't stop. And after a while, Hakan and his men realized that something wasn't right, and they landed their ship to tend to the king's wounded arm. According to tradition, they carried Hakan off the ship and laid him down on the very same flat rock where his mother Thora had given birth to him 40 years previously. And there, on the rock that now bears the name Hokonsela or Hokon's Rock, he died. Before he gave up the ghost, Hokon lamented the fact that he would die in a pagan land and expressed regret that he had compromised his Christianity for the sake of his crown. I'm not sure what the people around him thought about his religious musings, but they probably didn't sympathize too much because they gave him a pagan funeral according to the rites becoming a Viking king. His court poet even composed a poem about his glorious end and how well received he was at Valhalla. Even though he was relatively young when he died, Hakon had ruled Norway for 27 years, and despite the occasional invasion, it had been good years for the Norwegians. Hakon had been a popular king, even though he was a Christian, and he was to be known as Hakon the Good. Soon, the retreating Eriksons got word of the death of King Hakon after the Battle of Fityar. One of them, Harald Eriksson, would now become king. He would be far less good to Norway than his uncle had been. But before we get into the reign of King Harald II of Norway, we need to rewind the tape slightly and look at what had been going on in Denmark over the last few years. Next time, we'll talk about the career of the Eriksson's maternal uncle, who was also called Harald. To distinguish him from all the other heralds populating the sagas, this herald is known as Harald Bluetooth. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not recommend it to others who might be interested? Also, please consider leaving a favorable review and some stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a great way to attract new listeners to the show. Another good way to support the Scandinavian History Podcast and to dig a little deeper into Old Norse mythology is to go to Amazon or Kindle and purchase my book, Viking Mythology, Thor, Odin, Loki, and the Old Norse Myths. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. If you're more of a Twitterer, then you can follow me and send me messages on Twitter at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.